Welcome to the podcast series from the Decision-Making Voices from the Field Leadership Seminars at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. Good afternoon. My name is Jenna Trope, and I'm a master's candidate in the Social and Behavioral Sciences Department and a member of the Harvard School of Public Health Women in Leadership Student Organization. I'm excited to be here today to introduce Elaine Kmark. She's a public sector scholar with extensive experience in government, academia, and politics. Dr. Kmark is a senior fellow in the Governance Studies Program at the Brookings Institution and the founding director of the Center for Effective Public Management. She is also senior editor of FixGov, a blog focused on discussing and proposing solutions for domestic political and governance challenges. Most recently, she's the author of How Change Happens or Doesn't, The Politics of U.S. Public Policy. The book explores transformative changes in the space where politics and policy overlap and asks why some policies succeed while others fail. Prior to her current positions, she was a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, where she taught courses for 15 years. She was also a senior staffer in the White House from 1993 to 1997 and created and managed the National Performance Review, which was the largest effort at government reform in the second half of the 20th century. In the 1980s, she helped to found the New Democrat movement that resulted in Bill Clinton's election to the presidency. She has a PhD and master's degree from the University of California, Berkeley. Before I turn the session over to Dr. Robert Blendon, who will be moderating today, please join me in welcoming Dr. Elaine Kmark to the Harvard School of Public Health and to the Voices from the Field Leadership Series. Hey, Jenna, thank you. Uh, we're going to have a bit of uh, fun today. Uh, Elaine is an old friend. And secretly, Elaine's lived a life that an awful lot of students here would have loved to do. She's been in politics, public policy, academics, in the White House, taught students, gave advice to presidential candidates. And uh, since we're friends, I'm going to ask her about her life and how she did this. So uh, first is, I I've got to know, did you think about this role when you were an infant? How did you? <laughs> come to this. This is not the traditional role that people play. Tell me how we got into this incredibly, uh, really five different type career roles. Well, when I was a little girl, I wanted to be a princess, just like most little girls <laughs> actually still want to be. <laughs> so that wasn't the case. However, my dad worked for the Social Security Administration. And my first memory of my father's job was that he worked for the government, and that was a good thing. I was 15 years old before I knew that not all pens had written on the property of U.S. federal government, <laughs> as the pens in my house had. And um, Dad got his big, got a big promotion. He was probably in his. I don't know, early 40s, I was a teenager. And we moved from upstate New York to Baltimore, which is the headquarters, still is, of Social Security Administration. Because this was 1965, Medicare had just passed. So my dad was one of a team of young men who were called upon to write the training manuals for Medicare. 
So they could train the thousands and thousands of people in the Social Security Administration how to sign up people for Medicare and Medicare eligibility. And he used a new um, science of learning at the time called program learning, where you, 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 I'm sure that we still use it, right, where you sort of read a paragraph, then you answered a question about the paragraph, then you read a paragraph, answered a question. In order to see if he was doing this right and he was writing in a simple and clear way, he, tr he tried out his writing on me. <laughs> so I think it's fair to say that I was the only 15-year-old in America who could calculate Medicare benefits in 1966. So, <laughs> so that was my introduction to politics and government, and I was always interested in it, and part of it was, you know, the lessons in my home. So tell me how you sort of moved from the academic role in public policy to politics, and you really did. It wasn't a matter of, yeah. I'm going to watch you, uh, study you, but in fact, you were a major figure in setting up the politics of all types of policies. How did you decide to bridge that gap, and how easy was it to do? You know, I went to graduate school in political science, and then we moved to Washington. And I sat at home starting to write a doctoral dissertation. And that just seemed a little boring. <laughs> That's what I'm asking. My doctoral dissertation didn't lead to your career. So I was very interested to how well, you made that so happen. So I, I dropped my dissertation. Yeah. OK? I dropped my dissertation and went to work for the Democratic National Committee when Jimmy Carter was president. And they were running the, a, what was a series of party rules commissions. And I found myself in the most, one of the most interesting nomination races in recent American history. I found myself at 30 in the middle of the Kennedy-Carter fight for the nomination. And with a bunch of other people, Tom Donilon, the, who was the retired, who just left as the national security advisor to Obama, um, a, a lot of people, a lot of us cut our political teeth in that nomination fight. And I certainly left my doctoral dissertation <laughs> behind and didn't even think about it for a couple more years because politics was so exciting. However, um, in 1980, after that fight, um, as you may remember, Ronald Reagan won the presidency and the Republicans took the Senate. So I then discovered that I had no job and what being a Democrat was unlikely to find a job because, you know, there weren't any jobs for Democrats. And so I actually sat down and went back and wrote my dissertation. And of course, I wrote it about nominating politics. And I also, though, had to do something which is apropos of my recent book. I had to, you, I couldn't write a dissertation just about the Democrats. I had, if it was going to be legitimate, I had to write about the whole system and both political parties. I met a guy named Lee Atwater, who was George Bush's famous, you know, political operative. And he was sympathetic, since he was also ABD in political science, <laughs> uh, from University of South Carolina. And he opened up the Republican Party for me. And I got to know lots of Republicans, a couple of whom are still friends of mine. Um, I got to know this other world, which was the world of conservatives, of Republicans, people who worshipped Dwight Eisenhower, um, not Jack Kennedy, uh, different, different 
like a, it was it was like be, I was like being an anthropologist going into a, a new world. So um, I wrote my doctoral dissertation then ten years after leaving graduate school. I had three children by that time. I, I was a suburban mom, but I actually finished my dissertation. So I really went back and forth a lot, but I didn't really become an academic, frankly, till I came to Harvard in 1997. I, I was a part-time academic. Uh, so uh, I want to move into the reinventing government. Uh, first of all, uh, that came out of a period when we saw a huge distrust in government in general and in, mm -hmm. uh, in the world of public. And uh, so was this a Clinton-Al Gore idea, this idea of actually trying to figure about how you could make government work in a way that people would feel better? Does that go back to your father making Medicare work? No. Or where, where, <laughs> where does that come from? Reinventing government was part and parcel of the new democratic movement that we began in the late 80s through the Democratic Leadership Council, now defunct. Um, and Bill Clinton was the chairman of that group. So we were doing this simultaneously. And essentially, the goal of the DLC was to fix the problems of the Democratic Party at that time. So to give you an idea how severe the Democratic Party's problems were, we were in the middle of a crime wave, an unprecedented crime wave in American cities, and the Democrats were perceived as the party of the uh, criminals, not the victims. Not a good place to be, okay? So we had a lot of things to fix, including this massive distrust of government. So a guy named David Osborne, who's one of our neighbors here in um, the Boston area, uh, wrote, had written a book called Reinventing Government. Clinton read it. We at the DLC publicized it. And Clinton knew he's a very intuitive, brilliant politician. He knew that just as reforming welfare, getting cracking down on crime, and, and reinventing government were the sorts of things that were going to fix the image of the Democratic Party, which at that point was a party that was seen as really out of step with the mainstream of America. Fast forward, by the way, and a lot of these things can be said of the Republicans today, but we come back to that. So it was really part of his campaign promise. He, I saw him in New Hampshire. He went from place to place, town hall, town hall, talking about reinventing government. And it was very important that it was reinventing, because as a Democrat, he couldn't be against government, right? He wasn't going to be against the party of, of Franklin Roosevelt. But he knew that Americans were looking for a change. And that's what he meant when he talked about it in the campaign. So how do you actually make that happen? Well, that was the problem, right? Then we got into the White House. Then we got in the White House, and we had to say, okay, what does this mean? Right. <laughs> what does this mean yeah. in the federal government? Yeah. And the first briefing I ever did with the president and the vice president, I gave. I wanted to set the magnitude of the task, and I said, Mr. President, there are more federal employees than there were people in the state of Arkansas. And Mr. Vice President, the federal government is in control of more real estate than the state of Tennessee. That's how big this thing is. And so we were going to have to really spend some time figuring out what was wrong. We had a lucky break in that 
we were sort of operating simultaneously with the advent of the internet. When I went into the White House in 93, literally we didn't have computers, okay? We had push button telephones and no computers. By 96, we were online, although the Secret Service would not let us hook up to the internet <laughs> because it was a security breach. They didn't know how to protect the president's schedule, so we couldn't use the internet. In fact, it wasn't until I came here to Harvard in 1997 that I ever surfed the web because in the White House that was verboten. Um, and, but we were able to see the potential of the technology and we were able to start taking as we moved through topics in the government, we were able to use the new technology to increase our productivity. And so we were able to deliver the smallest government since John Kennedy was president. We were able to downsize in the military. We we're downsizing bases. We were we did a lot of we did just a lot of re-engineering, everything from the Internal Revenue Service to the Veterans Administration. Um, and We've, we're very proud of the fact that if you look at that trust in government score you talked about, Bob, it starts at 17% in 1993. By 2000, it's at 44%. And we think that we just were working and working and working to say to the American people, we are trying to give you value for money. Okay. Um, you have a lot of people running federal agencies at that time who may or may not be as enthusiastic about this yeah. as you are. <laughs> are there some lessons here about how you get, yeah. uh, uh, as someone who chaired a department, the thought of downsizing really was not as exciting to me as it might have been in a way. <laughs> so how did you get them all so excited about being smaller and leaner? Yeah, um, uh. well, that was hard, Bob. That was hard because, it, well, and especially after 12 years of Republicans, yes. right? All the Democrats came in and they wanted to expand. They wanted bigger, more, more, yeah. more. Um, a couple things. Um, we did it the, the, with the carrot and with the stick, all right? The carrots were that this was a high-level administration priority. And p the president talked about it. The vice president talked about it. People knew that big was not good that the era of big government was over, as Bill Clinton had said. So they knew that if they wanted to sort of be on the same page as the president, which most people did, that that um, they that, that, that rather than expand, they ought to hold the line. <laughs> they ought to try to hold the line. Um, the second thing was we did have a technological revolution going on. And this, in fact, allowed for a lot of efficiencies. So a lot of the downsizing that occurred during this period was literally um, information technology coming in and doing things that used to have like thousands of clerks doing. And thirdly, and those were sort of the carrots, the stick was we used OMB personnel caps. We just placed the caps on the agencies and said, you're having this many FTEs, that's it. Sorry, Charlie. And we had to do that as well. So we did the carrots and the sticks, and we had huge reductions in personnel, which did not go back up, by the way, until after 9-11, where the increases then were made up, but it was all on the national security side. So strategically, are there some lessons that if you were giving someone else advice doing this that you'd give them? Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, leadership really does matter. So having the president care about the issue matters. And in fact, since then, we've had two presidents who sort of say they care, but don't in a systematic way. 
Um, secondly, we had expertise. So leadership matters, expertise matters. We built an initial team of 400 seasoned civil servants. I was the political head of this, but I had leading the effort three uh, men who between them had almost 100 years of government service. They knew where everybody was buried. When I said, look, I want so-and-so to come and work for the federal government, we had no appropriation, by the way. We had no act of Congress, no appropriation. We spent millions of dollars. How did we do that? Oh, they'd say, well, yeah, you can use the Intergovernmental Personnel Act. We'll get that done. Okay, they knew how to make this monstrosity of the federal government work. I had computers, telephones, travel money, personnel, et cetera, with no appropriation. Okay, and it was because they knew how to borrow and use sort of um, equivalencies within the federal government. We recruited these 400 people, made them into teams. That was my next question. How did you find them? Okay, well, uh, here's the interesting thing. There's a picture on my wall in my office of Al Gore and I in April, and the cherry blossoms are out, et cetera. And that was the day that he told me that we need to have our team recruited. So we rushed and rushed and rushed to recruit the team. And what we got was the federal government giving us their turkeys. <laughs> so every office that had a person who was completely dysfunctional and they couldn't fire, they sent them to us. So we, so for the photo op on April 15th, we had a full team. We then had to spend the next two months getting rid of the, the people who were not the right mindset because the mindset had to be they had to be an innovator they had to have ideas and they had to have a passion for change because most of the passion in a bureaucracy is for holding the line and we were looking for people who wanted to change the uh let's open this up for a minute it turns out i have 10 years of questions here so if you don't have anything uh, i'm fine but if somebody wants to get in the middle of this for a second does anyone want to ask a question Hi, how are you? Thank you very much for being here. Uh, my name is Leo. I'm an MPH student here at the school. And you said passion for change. And so my question is, um, how do you engage people who are you know, not really thrilled about changing things? And how do you, how do you engage them to, to movement? Because we talk a lot about leadership here, and especially in this series. And it would be great to know about you. How do you actually engage people to do things? Yeah. Um, well, there's two ways. Um, one way is, in fact, you try to make it in their interests, okay? And you try to make it something that they think they, they see in their interests. And the other way is you just bowl right over them and ignore them and just go around them, okay? And organizations do that all the time. Okay, they will find a change agent. There's, there's something called, um, well, a lot of corporations will have places where they focus on innovation and then they just implement the innovation and the people who don't like it leave. A lot of people left the government when we came in. There were people that took their retirement because they said, we don't like this. We don't like these guys. We don't like all this service stuff. You know, we don't like the customer service proposals they're making. They left. So it's a mixture. Some, sometimes you can bring people along. Leadership matters here and persuasion matters. Sometimes actually you just do a generational change. 
and a lot of times what you find is is the generational change will do it um, my successor I, I came up here to Harvard in 97 and a man named Morley Winograd took my job and somebody once asked him how is the federal government going to operate in the future when they're losing all of these senior people and his response was how are they going to manage in the future if they keep all these senior people? <laughs> so I, I think everybody who's been through a change realizes that there is some combination of leadership and persuasion, but also just generational change and personnel change. Other questions? Well, uh, Elaine, if you were giving advice to someone uh, starting out who wanted to follow in your route, what would you give them in terms of advice? Well, okay, so I'd say there's two things, right? Um, One has to be staying at the university and being a professor, but there probably is a second <laughs> option. <laughs> I think one is subject matter expertise, yeah. okay? I think in this day and age, subject matter expertise is quite important. On the other hand, um, you know, a lot of my colleagues and your colleagues have brilliant ideas and they never see the light of day. They never get out of the academic press or the academic journals. And I think that everybody needs to understand politics. Um, and yet people kind of, they shy away from it. They think there's something dirty about it. Politics is democracy, guys. We like democracy, we hate politics. You can't have, you don't have democracy without politics nor do you have democracy without political parties. Parties matter. Factions within parties matter. We don't govern extra party. In fact, I can give you a long list of politicians, Jesse Ventura, who managed to, to get elected as extra party and are big flops. He was a wrestler in case you missed that. Yeah. <laughs> and he had his moment in the sun, but he was quite ineffective as a yes. governor and ultimately ineffective as a, as a politician. Sure. So I think everybody needs to just pay attention to parties. And then I, th so there's the expertise angle, the intellectual angle. There's an emotional angle. People who care about public policy tend to have an emotional attachment to their beliefs. And that emotional attachment then results in them thinking that the opposition is somehow evil and somehow bad. Well, maybe that's the case sometimes. Usually, frankly, in democracies, it's not. They're just different. And you cannot get anywhere if you don't understand the opposition. So just vilifying the Tea Party is not going to allow you to understand what they believe in, why they believe in it, what the points of contact are, et cetera, and where, where the potential agreements are. Um, but too many people, and, and I'll include, by the way, the White House on this one, after 2010, they just dismissed these people. Oh, they're crazy, they're radical, they're this, they're that. Well, you know, the more you talk about people like that, the more they decide that you're crazy and radical too. Okay, and you get into this downward spiral. You really have to be able to put yourself in the other person's shoes. And if you can't do that, you are, I don't care how smart you are and how many degrees you are, you will not achieve change. You will not be effective in moving things forward um, in the world. How do you get some experience doing that? Well, you gotta start, and it's hard in Cambridge, 
you got to start knowing people who are not like you. Okay, I mean, one as I say, when I did my doctoral dissertation, one of the best parts of it was I had to learn the Republican Party. I had to learn their values. I, I had to learn that freedom to them is kind of what caring is to Democrats. That freedom was, is really at the core of what makes people in that party tick. And there's some really good things about freedom. And, you know, I kind of got an appreciation for Republicans and conservatives, for that matter, in the course of doing that. You can't do that if you sit in like-minded classrooms all the time, if you're always with like-minded people. So you've got to go learn about different people. And it's not always easy because, especially here in Cambridge, we live in a sort of rarefied atmosphere. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to meet, you know, southern truck drivers. <laughs> Someone want to get in? Because I'm going to change the subject in a second. Hi, uh, my name is Danielle Ordan. I'm an MPH student uh, here. Um, just going off your a piece of career advice um, and getting involved in kind of the, the political process, how do you... I mean, that process to me is about being a generalist, so being very flexible, doing what needs uh, to be mm -hmm. done in you know, whatever campaign you're involved, whether you're a policy advisor, whether you're hammering lawn signs um, in, with a, uh, in, in, um, in a neighborhood. How do you balance that with the advice you gave on being a, on a, uh, on being a subject expert? And how do you um, uh, decide when to assert yourself as a subject expert inside of these campaigns? Well, first of all, campaigns are no place for subject experts, okay? They don't exist. Nobody cares, okay? Don't think that subject experts matter in campaigns. They don't. It's all about the broad vision, the broad generalization, et cetera. Where the subject matters, experts matter is in the government itself, when you win. And that's where, I mean, it's important that you get that you understand where the other side is coming from, okay? Because your, your opponents there are going to be powerful, entrenched interests, interest groups, members of the opposite political party, or as often happens, a faction within your own party, okay? That's, that's opposed to this. So it's not, don't say it's, I don't want to, say that campaigns have a lot of place for expertise. They don't, unless your expertise is in stratified random sampling and polling. <laughs> okay, then you're... That's then very you're, important. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> then Mr. Bl the, Mr. Blendon's skill set is the ver very valuable skill set. But it's in government, right? It's in government where people with expertise, like yourselves, find themselves in government. And that's when they need to be able to understand the political context in which they exist, what the opposition is about, who the opposition is, what the factions are within their own political party. In, my, in the book that, that uh, Professor Blender was so kind to mention, um, I talk about the 2007 immigration bill, where you would have thought that a newly elected president and a, a Republican who wanted immigration reform ever since he was governor of Texas, and a new Democratic Congress led by uh, Nancy Pelosi, first woman speaker, highly popular at the time, and for immigration reform. Hey, 
you would have thought they could do it, yeah, right? right? Both houses of the Congress wanted it, president wanted it. It was a big flop. They pulled it off the Senate floor. They didn't even let it get to a vote. It was such a big flop. Now, one of the things I talk about in the book is unpacking what happened there. And both sides misunderstood their political parties. So George Bush did not see coming the nativist element in his own party that was very much opposed to immigration reform. He just didn't see it coming. He th or he thought that he could, with enough Democratic votes, he could roll, roll over them. Nancy Pelosi did not see the complete apathy of the Black Caucus towards immigration reform. Total apathy. Karl Rove, interestingly enough, in his biography, talks about having President Bush go to the Democratic Caucus retreat somewhere in West Virginia, and president's speaking about immigration reform, and everybody's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Karl Rove is standing at the back at the table where the members of the Black Caucus are sitting. Everybody's applauding. Not that table. And Karl Rove goes, oh, my god. <laughs> That's when he realizes he's, they've got a problem, because there wasn't a united Republican Party, nor was there a united Democratic Party. So once you get to a place where you're trying to do something, then understanding a broader political context, understanding something about parties, something about the way the system works, something about interest groups, then it matters a lot. And it's a combination of the two. I used to tell my students, all these students at the Kennedy School, Condoleezza Rice is a very wonderful academic, right? But there are probably a thousand equally wonderful foreign policy academics as Condoleezza Rice. What did she have? She understood George Bush. She understood the political party in which she lived. And so she was able to be, she became a very, very valuable aide to him through the eight years and one of the most powerful women in America. But the, the, her foreign policy expertise was only the beginning of the expertise. So everybody's shaking their heads. Let me just move it slightly over. A lot of uh, students from around Harvard end up working for cabinet secretaries in some junior role. And they will arrive with a view about what makes an effective cabinet secretary and what doesn't. You've had a chance to look at a lot of these. Oh, players. he looked at a lot of them, yeah. Yes. What makes an effective cabinet secretary in your mind, particularly at least from a president's point of view? From president's point of view, it's two things, and there's nothing else, frankly, okay? It is, first of all, does the cabinet secretary get my priorities and my campaigns, okay? I mean, are they for reinventing government, <laughs> okay? Are they for this health care plan, yeah. et cetera? But the second is, can, the, can this secretary manage their, their, what this big thing underneath them so that it doesn't screw me up? That's all. Don't screw me up. That's what they want. Don't have a Katrina when I'm president, right? Don't have the health care bill come out and then fall to pieces in the first month of its operations. They want to be on the same wavelength and they want no trouble. And they want you to be successful, which mostly means you manage this thing and you keep the crises quiet, or you, or you anticipate crises and you make sure that they don't blow up. Uh, so in your experience, 
what is the best background or doesn't, it just depends on the individual about who does this very well. As a cabinet secretary? Yeah. It, it's, it's usually somebody, it's usually a former governor. I mean, it's usually, now there's some notable <laughs> exceptions, but um, it's usually a former governor because governors have the experience in managing large organizations. Um, they're very much accountable for action. Okay, uh, or or big city mayors too. Same same difference, and they uh, they're accustomed to working in a political context and with a legislature, et cetera. So it's usually somebody who's had that kind of experience. Um, rarely do subject matter experts work, but sometimes they do. Uh, Bob Reich, our own Harvard's Bob Reich, was a very good labor secretary. Part of it is he had a close relationship with the president, so he had some White House access that not every cabinet secretary had, but he also took to the managerial um, task. He got uh, Tom Glynn, who some of us know, yes, um, to be his number two, and Tom had actual managerial experience. So, you know, as long as you get it in there some way and understand that you need it, um, you can be pretty good, but it's generally governors um, who come with the right skill set. So before I switch in a minute to uh, applying this to the ACA, you have a chance for one more question. I can't let the ACA go, go by, not only because there's a governor involved, but because <laughs> for a lot of us, there's something we, we watch. Somebody doesn't want to get in, so what are lessons I from... We're going to go to lessons from reinventing government for running the ACA and getting it off the ground. Um, my name is Michael. I'm a master's student in health policy and management. I think something I, I used to live in Washington and something that turned me off of the political process and a lot of my peers was the sort of existential terms in which the discourse seems uh -huh. to be playing out now. And I, I don't know how new that is to American politics. I was born in the 80s, so you can probably <laughs> shed some light on what <laughs> things were like before then. But um, I'm wondering whether you saw any effective strategies while you were in government to sort of temper down the nature of the debate and encourage people, especially in eras of mixed government, which you served in as we are in now, um, encourage people to have kind of more reasoned discourse in the media or on the Hill or, or wherever it might be playing out? Well, first of all, it's not at all new, okay? I mean, Newt Gingrich, Newt Gingrich and his friends regularly thought Bill and Hillary Clinton were murderers, okay? They thought that they murdered Vince Foster, all right? So this was not, this is not exactly new. Um, it's, it's, it's always been... A lawyer associated with the Clintons, for yeah. those of you who... And he committed suicide, and, you know, the, there were people yeah. who, for four years, thought that they'd killed him, okay? Um, yeah, so a lot, this is really ugly. You want an ugly race? Go back to 1800, okay? Look at Thomas Jefferson's race against John Quincy Adams. That was ugly, okay? You had pamphleteers in those days. They printed anything they wanted to. There were no libel laws that were at all, you know, uh, prosecuted. I mean, it was awful. It was ugly, ugly. How about the presidential race of 1860? which led us, not, not only was it ugly with a lot of name calling, we then proceeded to kill each other for four years. Now that's an ugly race. So the first thing I'd say to your generation is toughen up, all right? Toughen up. This is, this is hard work. People have real beliefs, right? And there are real things at stake. 
and name-calling is the least of the problems. Now, there is an issue that is fairly new, and the issue that's fairly new is that the, there's an informal quality to Washington that used to exist right up until recent years, where the name-calling was kind of for show, and then people would kind of drink together, and they'd figure out what they were actually going to do. As Congress started to be a part-time job, where they arrive on Tuesday morning and they leave as soon as they can on Thursday afternoon to go back to their district and raise money, um, the time for informality has shrunk. So people who used to call each other names during the day and then have drinks together at night now just call each other names during the day. And so there's a lot of discussion about how do you bring that back? How do you bring back the space that used to be for negotiation? And there's a lot of things in here. Um, Congress used to be, still is, mostly men. But successful political wives were always women, women who loved politics as much as their husbands did. And so there was a whole world of, this, of Washington hostesses. And they gave parties. They gave dinner parties. And the good Washington hostesses were really good at putting the two enemies next to each other and facilitating the conversation that made them work. And so now that era is gone. I mean, women aren't going to start giving parties again because the women work. But the question is, how do you get to, back to the functional equivalent of that space where people could actually know each other, stop calling each other names? And you work on one thing, and then you see that you could maybe work on the next thing, and you could work on the next thing. So that's really what the problem is. It's not the name calling, which we've always had. It's the absence of informality and a way to make the system work. And so you're going to find political scientists doing, saying some pretty strange things lately, like bring back earmarks, those bad, awful things, earmarks. Earmarks were what let somebody vote for something to make a majority, even if they didn't like it. It's allowing you to get something for your own district. Yeah. Uh, you got something for your own district. You got a bridge. You got right. a school. You got, right. you know, you got a, a rock and roll history museum, you know, whatever it was, right? You got something that allowed you to give that vote. And um, there's a lot of discussion now among political scientists about how do we recreate a system that allowed for the informality that in the end made the system work and didn't result in government shutdowns and almost defaulting on the US debt, right? Which was unheard of in, a prior, in prior generations. So that's where the, I think that's where the problem is. And name calling, get, get used to it. All right, uh, I'm gonna forget name calling, we're gonna go to the ACA. Okay. What are the lessons learned here from years of watching how government functions or not about how this plays out in the future, but also how it might have played out differently. Um, okay, so let's start with information technology, as I told a smaller group before. The month that ACA was falling apart, we had two American astronauts floating in space outside of the space shuttle making repairs to the space shuttle. Their spacesuits were made by a company called Ocean Engineering. 
and the technology that allowed them to do the spacewalks made by a company over here in Worcester, the David Clark Company. Space Shuttle is made by Boeing as the prime contractor and an infinite number of smaller contractors. And it was all put together by U.S. government civil servants working at NASA, GS-14s, 15s, 16s, and SES. There is nothing inherent in the U.S. government that says we can't do technology because we do pretty awesome technology. Even though a lot of people have moral opposition to this, which I take seriously, the fact of the matter is that we can pinpoint a, a suspected Al-Qaeda terrorist halfway around the world, send an airplane that has no person flying it, and take out that person's car. Okay, how did that happen? Contractors run by U.S. government, civilian and military personnel. Okay, let's go to the ACA, the setup. Many, many contractors run by U.S. civilian government personnel. So you have to ask yourself, wait a minute, there's nothing intrinsic about this operation. It happens all the time in the U.S. government. What went wrong here? So let's, let's then look at that. First of all, there's no lead contractor. There was no integra systems integrator. There was nobody pulling the whole thing together. Now, who makes that decision? Okay, that decision should have been made by the Secretary of Health and Human Services, but the White House should have known to ask, who's the lead integrator, all right? The space shuttle, it's Boeing, okay? Boeing has the responsibility that all the parts and everybody's working okay, all right? So that's problem number one. Problem number two was, they did not recruit someone in the White House who had technological skills as opposed to health policy skills. So the people in charge of this were health policy, which is fundamentally different than building mammoth IT systems. Because of that, they continually made changes to what was gonna go on in the in the contracts, okay, and, and what the what the um, websites needed to offer, and what the tr what the interoperability was, et cetera. And as you know, change orders. Even if you some maybe some of you maybe not here, but you've probably built a house or renovated a house. Change orders are you know a disaster. They are a lot of money, but they also start adding complexity to it. Um, they also never rehearsed. Okay, they didn't rehearse this. In the su last summer when Sheila Burke and I were starting to work on healthcare, we kept asking people, isn't there a test? Isn't there a test? They didn't run a test. You've got to do tests. Now, the absence of rehearsal is key to a lot of other government screw-ups. You guys don't remember, but in 1980, uh, there was a U.S. military endeavor to try and rescue the Iranian hostages. And the helicopters crashed in the desert. It was a, it, a U.S. servicemen were killed. It was a major embarrassment for Jimmy Carter. Definitely cost him the election. And we didn't get our hostages back for another year almost. And what was the problem? They never rehearsed it. They never rehearsed the operation. So the rehearsing it to show you where the bugs were, they should have been doing it all year. 
They should have been doing it in a part of Vermont, in a part of Nebraska. They should have been rolling this out in pieces and then fixing it, et cetera. And they didn't. Now, I'm somewhat sympathetic to that because given the hostility they were facing from the Republicans, clearly the rehearsals would have shown problems. The problems would have been in the press. They would have been under attack. But an experienced manager would have understood that better to have little slings and arrows from the rehearsal than the big sling and arrow <laughs> when the whole thing didn't work. So that, that, was, that was also a problem. This is basically a management failure, okay? This is basically a management failure, um, and it shouldn't have happened. It didn't really need to happen. Finally, there's a problem with the whole bill itself, but I think that goes beyond the question of what happened in the rollout. Yeah. But basically, this was a management failure. Don't let anybody tell you that we need to redo the entire procurement system of the U.S. government. Don't let anybody tell you that civil servants don't have the technological skills to oversee contractors. This happens all the time in U.S. Gov in incredibly sophisticated, detailed operations, and it happens most of the time successfully. So is it that the White House doesn't have a group that worries about these types of issues, or? It, this White House is Not peculiar. mentioning the cabinet secretary, but she happened to be a governor. Yep, she, she happened did. to run things in that in state. In that state pretty well. You yeah. would have thought. You would have thought, but um, this White House has a problem with implementation. I mean, and it's not just here, it's in everything from Syria. You first, the first place you saw it was in the reaction to the BP oil spill, where it took three weeks to discover the Coast Guard. Okay, literally, it took three weeks. I was waiting. What about the Coast Guard, guys? What about the Coast Guard? Sending messages in, writing little op-eds. What about the Coast Guard, Coast Guard? How about the United States Navy sitting there, right? Took them three weeks. So there's a problem with implementation. I think it starts at the top. It's just a lack of management experience. It's a lack of implementing big, big, big processes like this. And I, want, I wrote after the, um, after the ACA rollout, I said, this White House needs James, a James Baker. They need a Democratic James Baker, somebody who is experienced in all the moving pieces of the government and has and knows how to put the technical ex expertise and put it together. And I, I like to think I had something to do with it. A, a week later, they brought John Podesta back into the White House to do exact, try to do exactly that, make sure they do. But there's a big implementation problem in this White House. Um, it has not been solved. It wasn't solved in the first term, even though we saw it in the first term. It continues to be there. You saw it with the screw-ups in Syria um, and, and a whole thing that didn't need to happen. Uh, now we've got a failed Syrian peace process, you know, that those Bad weapons are still sitting in Syria. They have not been moved. You know, so it, it, there is a, there's an implementation problem. And presidents sometimes get this and sometimes don't. I mean, they all have their implementation problems. Jimmy Carter had the hostages in the desert. George Bush had Katrina. The problem is that when you fail in a big way like this, you go down in the public's estimation, right. and you can't get back. 
Jimmy Carter never recovered from those helicopters crashing in the desert. He went on to lose rather spectacularly to Ronald Reagan. George Bush was in his second term, but if you look at his popularity, his approval ratings, they go down starting in September of 2006, and they just stay down. They never rebound. And so far, the same thing has happened to Obama's approval ratings. The lowest in his presidency, they're in his 40s, in the 40s. And the problem is, because these tend to be sticky, you know, and not move back, then what happens, it's even after you fix the healthcare system and the websites are up and working and people are signing up, et cetera, you don't have the political clout to do anything else. So you end up being a sort of lame duck before your time. So these implementation failures historically have been pretty severe for presidents. And yet presidents come into office thinking that it's their rhetorical gifts, their messaging that matter. Messaging is my thing. That's <laughs> my view is any problem can be solved by a better message. So obviously we're, uh, we're not here. How about some insights about not the implementation, but the process of getting this bill passed and lessons learned. One of the things about debates about health reform is most people in the audience will live through two or three more in their careers. <laughs> this doesn't end. They continue other things. What are lessons that you think we question. may have learned for the next next round? Well, the first lesson that they overlearned was that was the Hillary Care lesson. Okay, so. I, I was in the, we were simultaneous in the White House with um, Hillary's healthcare process. She had hundreds of people working for her, as, as did I. Okay, we were told specifically to stay away from healthcare. So we didn't do any process reengineering of Medicare, Medicaid, anything like that, because Hillary was going to change everything. So there's no reason for us to do it. So we kind of stayed away from that piece of the government. Um, and what they, what her healthcare, process did, and you've probably read the great uh, David Broder book that's like a huge tome More like this. some of you in the audience are currently reading. The uh, some of you are probably currently <laughs> plowing through it, right, at your insistence? Yes, Yes, right. okay. Well, you, you know, one of the things that comes out in that book is how they tried to fix everything. They tried to articulate this down to the, to the most, min, to the minutiae. And they, lay, they had, Congress had no part in this. So Obama administration comes along and they say, they do the exact opposite. They go 180 degrees in the other direction. They let Congress do it. Well, the problem with letting Congress do everything is there's 435 of them or 535 when you include the Senate. And you are likely to get a bill that has no coherence. And at no point, did the White House step in and draw a firm line? So probably the biggest failure was the absence of a um, public sector alternative, a public sector health alternative to the private sector, which would have served as a check on premiums and, and things like that. And they, but there, it happened at various times where the White House just stood back to much to the mystification of people like me who were like, what are they doing? What are they thinking? Just kind of giving up here. And so they, they kind of went in completely the other direction. And so you have a lot of things in this bill that don't kind of work. And there's an architectural problem with the bill. 
Um, we will, I, I told uh, a group earlier, um, at Brookings, we are in the process of monitoring the 2014 congressional primaries. And what we're looking for two things. Among the Republicans, we're looking for any sliver of light, right? What kind of things might they approve of going forward? Among the Democrats, we're looking at what are the reform ideas? What are the changes? Because what we now know is that the Democrats are, ha even the Democrats are having to go out there and they're having to say, not we support Obamacare, they're having to say, we support health care, and here's what I would do to change it. So I don't know, we've only been through the Texas primary so far, and we got a whole bunch more to go. By, stay tuned, by October, hopefully we will have two papers done, one on the internal conversation in the Republican Party, one on the internal conversation in the Democratic Party. And I think that's going to sort of show us where the ground is as we move beyond the Obama presidency. And then we'll start to have a, a real conversation about fixing this. Other questions? All right, thinking ahead, just assume, I'm just imagining this, there was a candidate called Hillary Clinton. Imagine. And she was forced to talk about health care again. How do you think <laughs> she's going to approach this? Uh, because she has the bill of her party, she has the years right. of experience, but there's likely to be a lot of problems lying on that table yeah. when she's running. Well, you know, the big issue and the big political issue is is turning out to be the mandate. And I would not be surprised if, in fact, in the next two years, we see the IRS penalties disappear for not signing up for health care. And then the question becomes, are we in a death spiral or not? Do we get enough people signing up without a mandate or with reduced penalties? As it is, and not many people know this, as it is, the, if you don't pay the penalty for not having health care, almost nothing happens to you. There's no lien against your, if you don't pay your income taxes, they put a lien against your property. That's a big deal, that's serious. If you don't pay the penalty for not having health care, they can't put a lien against your property. So they've already, the IRS has already signaled, well, we consider this health care thing less important than the overall question of paying the rest of your taxes. And so I would imagine that if this goes away, the question is then what does it do to sign up rates? If in fact you just have um, sicker people, older people signing up, what does that do to premiums? Does that start a death spiral? And by the time Hillary Clinton is running, what does she say, right? How does she, how does she do this if in fact it's looking really bad. So I think right now she's being very quiet. Most Democrats are being pretty quiet about this. But as we move past these midterms, there's going to be a big debate about this because we'll also see if the thing manages to work itself out or not. All right. We are going to thank our speaker, but a uh, point I want to make is the incredible importance of people who move in the public service back to universities, back to expertise. Uh, and uh, I do have a bias. Uh, getting involved in politics is a way of solving many of the problems that people here care about very passionately. 
and though it can be tough and uh, Elaine emphasizes that this can be a tough game, it is the kind of thing that lead the changes that people here care a lot about. So I'm going to thank Elaine again uh, and uh, I promised her we would report on the number of you who go into public service <laughs> after this and I want a card from the White House when you're there. <laughs> Elaine, thank you very much. Thank you very much. This has been a production of Decision Making Voices from the Field at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. We encourage you to share Decision Making Voices from the Field.